This is a main hustle media podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people. And I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey, y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed race bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, mask making, comic book store co-owning, shout out gulfcoastcosmos.com, podcaster (laughs) in this podcasting game. This is episode 114 and it is the second to last episode before I go on my next mental health hiatus. I was going to be doing this in December, but uh, as I've mentioned last week, I've been dealing with vertigo for the last three weeks. And um, I'm finally seeing doctors. I know what my plan is to try to resolve this current wave. So it just makes more sense to take my break now so that I can focus on this health issue and get this under control and then come back strong um, the first week of December, which also happens to be my birthday. So we'll come back for the December 1st episode, which will be my birthday episode. My birthday is on December 3rd. Uh, so I was going to have this be the last episode, but I'm actually going to extend it until November 3rd episode because this weekend I got a chance to speak with Gina, the host of the Mixed in the Six podcast, which is based out of Toronto. And they are coming back for their second season the first week of November. So I want to give y'all a chance to get to know Gina a little bit and maybe hopefully y'all will check out her podcast as well. When I came into interest in podcasting, I was listening to all of the true crime podcasts and all of the comedy podcasts I could find. I also want mixed podcasts to be like that too. That is not just militantly mixed that you listen to, but you're listening to some kind of brown. You're listening to Mixed in the Six. Let's see what else is out there. Some that I haven't checked out yet. I know there's one called Biracial Unicorns. I think there's one called Mixed Apostrophe, like M-I-X apostrophe D. Um, But there's more and more of them popping up. So continue to do your searches so you can see uh, that there are multiple things out there because, you know, we want to hear all the voices. We want to hear multiple perspectives and mixedness. And so next week, you'll get a chance to get to know Gina a little bit and hear about Mixed in the Six. So then after that, that'll be the last episode before I go on my break, and then I'll come back on December 1st. I'll still be available on social media, though, and I will, of course, be in the social distancing hangouts and things. Um, I just won't be releasing new episodes. I may release some reruns um, as long as it's not a whole lot of extra work for me to get it up. I just want to be able to take a break from all the podcasts, uh, Blurred Comics included, and get this health thing under control. And then I'll um, come back hopefully to full health in December. Uh, But because I'm taking the break in November, a couple of things that I want to do is I want to continue to acknowledge that the Hispanic and Latinx Heritage Month is October 15th through November 15th. So we're actually still in it. I did put out a couple calls, but I to folks, but I didn't manage to get any guests that are doing work in terms of, you know, lifting up or raising awareness for um, 
Hispanic and Latinx Heritage Month. So I failed this year to be able to do that. I'll start doing the work for it well in advance next year. Um, and of course, anytime throughout the year, <laughs> hopefully I can manage to tap into the groups that are doing work in that area because I don't actually have an access point at present. But I still want to acknowledge the Heritage Month. I know that many of our listeners are also mixed with uh, Hispanic and or Latinx heritage. So I want to be celebrating y'all and hopefully finding guests that um, will give you access, more access to the to the cultures and heritages that you come from as well. Um, so I'll try to get ahead of it for next year, um, but it just didn't work out this year. That also being said, November is the Native American and or Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month, depending on which term is more meaningful to you. Previous to 2019, it wasn't an official Heritage Month. It was made official in the U.S. last year. But before that, and for many years before that, it was always the month in which we would acknowledge Red November, which was the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Girls and Two-Spirit Month, where that, that was where a lot of work was done in terms of raising awareness. And for those of you that may not be aware, there is this hashtag MMIWG, the number two S, and that is a hashtag for missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit. Uh, because four out of five of Native women are affected by violence daily in this land that is currently occupied as the United States homicide towards women, girls, and two-spirit people are the third highest cause of death between people that are 10 to 24 years old. And it's the fifth leading cause of death for Native women and two-spirit people that are between the ages of 25 and 34. And these are statistics that come from the Center of Disease Control Homicide Prevention. The problem is that these murders, and uh, I don't know if kidnapping would be the right term, are go so unnoticed in American media because indigenous people are discounted here because some of the nations are sovereign. Um, they don't seem to garner the attention of our media. And for those whose sovereignty has been stripped from them, they don't have the same level of citizen rights as Americans as other Americans do. And so the violent crimes that are enacted against them seem to go unnoticed in the greater population. So it's been for many years that Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Two-Spirit Awareness Month was happening in November already. It's also referred to sometimes as Red November. I became aware of it roughly two years ago. And then last year, got more involved, listened more, started to follow more Indigenous um, social media accounts so that I would become more aware, so that it would be more in my view, the statistics and the and the the numbers are horrific, and I don't want to let that pass me without being able to either assist in raising awareness and or contributing in some way, shape, or form to help. So some of you may know I also have a side business, MasksByMain.com, and for that side business, I make masks, and every month I take. I take a portion of the proceeds and donate it to various COVID relief funds. After the death of Chadwick Boseman, I also started to donate the proceeds from my Black Panther masks to St. Jude's Children's Hospital for Cancer uh, Research because that was an organization that he was heavily involved in before he died of colon cancer himself. 
This month, I would like to contribute a portion of the proceeds to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit Organization, the uh, Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. They do have a COVID relief fund, um, which I guess money is routed from through the main donation tab. So that's where I'm going to be focusing the um, October and November donations from Mass by Maine. I'm going to put some links in the show notes for y'all in case you would like to contribute as well, because I do think it is important to to use whatever platforms we have to raise awareness on on issues such as this. Uh, you may notice that at the beginning of every episode of Militantly Mixed during the opening credits, I acknowledge that Militantly Mixed is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people. Uh, the reason why I do that is last year when I was at the Geek Girl Con in Seattle, Washington, uh, they did that ahead of every panel. It really affected me in this idea of like knowing what existed before you, understanding our history things like that. So I took it to heart and I looked up on the Native Lands website, uh, you know, what land am I currently occupying so that I can start to incorporate that as well. Because I think remembering what happened before is important and hopefully it does help us prevent doing it again. Although there are actually things that we could be doing now that while we may not be able to change things back to the way they were, we can at least try to improve the situation as it currently stands. I don't believe in stripping the sovereignty from the indigenous nations. I know that is happening. I do think that the the recent judgment from the Supreme Court that has granted ownership of the territory in Oklahoma to the the Creek Nation there is also a, a major step towards um, improving. Uh, I don't know really how to say it. I guess allowing for their sovereignty to actually stay intact, to, that they can govern their own um, criminal cases and things like that is, is important. So with this being Native American and or Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month, depending on which term is more acceptable for you, um, I just want to make sure that I acknowledge it now since I won't be able to do that during my my break in episode form. And um, just encourage you to continue to seek out following social media accounts that are from groups that you may not be a member from so that you can also gain awareness of what's happening to other communities. It's easy to live in a bottle and only understand the oppression that you're experiencing. Um, but the oppression that affects any of us individually as groups ultimately will spill out into our groups as well. So uh, do your best to follow more accounts of Latinx folks, of Black folks, of Asian folks, of Native uh, indigenous folks so that you can gain awareness of what they're experiencing as well. That is how I started to become more aware of the crimes against indigenous women and two-spirit and girls. Um, and I hope to continue to uh, have awareness of what's happening so that I can find ways from where I'm at to contribute positively in some way, shape or form. Um, let's see, before we get into today's episode, a few things, just a reminder about the transcripts. For, uh, I don't know how many people have had a chance to, to start reviewing those, but if you do go to militantlymixed.com and click on the transcripts tab, you will be routed to the Podscribe page that actually has transcripts from all episodes of Militantly Mixed dating back to episode 20. 
Um, I haven't resolved. It's going to be probably months until I'm able to resolve that issue with um, iTunes about them getting episodes zero through 19 um, back up so that we can get the transcripts for those as well. But you can subscribe to the transcripts so they drop into your email box every week, or you can just go to the militantlymix.com and click on the transcripts tabs to get access to them if that is something that you need. And I will do my best to try to keep them as clean as possible going forward and then work slowly on trying to clean up the the transcripts in the past. Sometimes names are misspelled or words are heard incorrectly, you know, or trans, transcribed incorrectly and things like that. So I'll do my best to to keep it clean going forward and fix what I can in the back when I have time. Uh, and also the annual Be Your Mixed Ass Self fundraiser t-shirt is available in the Teespring shop. So you can go to militantlymixed.com and click on the Teespring tab to get access to the Militantly Mixed logo tees and coffee mugs and tote bags, but also the the um, Be Your Mixed Ass Self t-shirt, the Mixed and Hella Black t-shirt. And I realize uh, my Mixed AF t-shirt seems to have disappeared, so I'm going to get that back up there as well. Um, I do have a couple other slogans I need to throw up that I've been uh, not able to get done, but this is the annual fundraiser t-shirt. It is a collector's item because you can get one every year and it only lasts until November 30th. Once November 30th is gone, so is that t-shirt and you'll just have to wait to next year to get the new design for next year. If you were um, able to pick up last year's then and this year's, then you will currently have a collect a collection Um, which I'm about. So I've seen some people have purchased them already. It is available till November 30th. So get those orders in so that you can start uh, posting those pics on Instagram. And just be sure that if you do hashtag it, be your mixed ass self or militantly mixed that you capitalize the word, every word in the hashtag so that um, people that do text to audio can actually understand what the hashtags are as well. And let's see what else before we get into today's episode. I guess... We only have about 10 more days left in the U.S. election, so I know y'all are tired of hearing about it. I am tired of hearing about it. And if you're one of our international listeners, I'm sure you're tired about hearing about American politics all the time. But if you have had a chance to register to vote, please make sure that you do so if you can. If you were able to do mail-in ballots for, you know, that obviously is a great option for maintaining our safety during this time of COVID. But if you weren't able to and you are planning on voting in person, uh, hopefully you're able to arrange to vote early in your area, depending on what is available on your state, uh, so that you can do it when the lines aren't too long, and hopefully, and you can remain safe and socially distanced. This is a very important time to be voting. And I know that not all listeners of this show are necessarily um, on the same in the same parties or or anything like that. But I I do at least believe that if you listen to the show, if you have any awareness of your mixed identity and your understanding of the impact against people of color in general, that while neither choice is ideal right now we can't continue on with the way that we have things. We just can't. Um, It's too dangerous. We're we're seeing the end of our country if we continue on with the the way things are going. Not that that means that if the tables switch, that it'll get instantly better. It won't for many years because there's a lot of damage to repair over the last four years. Um, So voting is important. Your local elections are also important. The presidential election is extremely important right now. Um, So if you're able to vote, please do. Please do. All right. Um, dang, these intros, I swear, I always have too much stuff to talk about. Um, all right. So this week's guest is Sidra. And before I get into talking about this week's episode, 
Uh, I have to apologize to Sidra because her episode was supposed to air two weeks ago, but that was kind of the start of my vertigo. And I just was not able to finish uh, editing the episode. And then last week, of course, the the what went up was the audio from the week, the previous week's live stream, which is kind of now how I do things. So um, I'm putting this episode here and apologizing to Sidra. Thank you for your patience since we did have an expected date already and um, I had to bypass that. Uh, Sidra and I met in a social group on Facebook related to Japanese American heritage. Um, Sometimes that's a great place. Sometimes it's not the safest place for the mixed folks in the group. And um, that is how we interacted. She had made a post which she's going to talk about. And um, the responses from people were pretty wild. And because of that, I reached out to her so that we can kind of talk about that experience and then also get to know her as well and welcome another cousin into the community. So since this intro is already so long, without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Sidra. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell everybody about you. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Sidra Kaluska. I am of mixed backgrounds. I am Polish with maybe a touch of Russian on my dad's side. And I am Japanese Canadian on my mom's side. And she is full-blooded Japanese, but Canadian. Born in in Canada, not like, is she what generation? She's third generation, zero language, zero language. Um, my grandparents went through the internments and that just like put a huge damper on so much of the culture. So um, growing up, I was pretty much cut out of all of the culture. Right. Um, how deep do you want me to get into this? And this is your story. You could get oh, you could get all the way into it. So were they um, from American internment or was was Canada doing that also? Canada did the same thing. I did not know. Um, that. Yeah. So um, they basically went roughly on the same schedule line that the U.S. did. Um, I'm. I don't know a whole bunch about my mom's side of the family, but I know I have relatives on the East and the West Coast. So um, I know some of her family were farmers and they basically, they lost their entire farm. Right. They were shipped off to some farm in the middle of nowhere. Um, Sections of Canada did it differently than the U.S.? Like the U.S. Mm. had specific camps that they shipped people off to. Mm-hmm. Um, my grand, my um, I don't know about my grandfather's side, but my mom's mom's family was sent to it was either a turkey or a sugar beet farm, and they were literally. It was in the middle of winter. They were basically put in a shed. 
And I interviewed my grandmother once when I was maybe in the fourth grade and she was six when they went in and mm-hmm. she's blocked a lot of that. Right. And remembering that, um, like they could see slats, like holes through the barn wall mm. because it wasn't even, it wasn't even a proper, any kind of living conditions. And this right. is Canada in the middle right. of hey. Oh my gosh. And, um, I did meet one cousin on that side of the family once who had been doing some family research and apparently somebody on that side was even born in this in the camp period and they actually hid her because they were taking babies away oh my gosh it's just kind of very complicated right Say the least about that period. I think my grandfather decided to work on the railroad instead of mm. going into the camps because he was old enough to do that. Mm. Um, so a lot of my cultural heritage, I feel like, was really squashed out during that right. period. And it does make sense, and I I get a, I get upset about like how Japanese come to other places and then just fully assimilate. But when you think about the history, as why the difference between you and I is my grandmother came during the Korean War era war brides. So she didn't have that part of like internment and loss of culture. It was really just like the military was like, you will be white now, you know, and they basically like took her into, they put her in American domesticity classes and taught her how to be. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a, (laughs) it's a whole thing. And so like to try to get this woman to teach us Japanese, it was always a secret because she was always afraid that they would send her back. So like in that case, it's a different kind of Mm-hmm. squashing of culture but both the internment generation and anybody that emigrated afterwards i think are a product of this like just assimilate and in that case we feel we have these faces and these skin tones and these ha- this hair and we're just like but i <laughs> What do we do with this what do we do with it exactly <laughs> So you did you grow up here in the States, though, or did you grow up? in? Yeah, I grew up here in the States. Um, so my dad uh, was from Michigan and complicated backgrounds for him. Um, just kind of a complicated backgrounds all the way around. Um, I was born around 20 minutes from where I live now. So oh, okay. I'm from the New River Valley area of Virginia up in the foothills. Mm. Um, so, wow. <laughs> I don't even know where to get started in some place. <laughs> well, um, we can, if you want to, we can kind of talk about why we connected and then you, sure. if you want, you can jump back in. Sure. Um, so our connection was through, um, I found a post, and I don't want to get too much into where it came from, that um, referred to different color groups as, and one of the color groups that was being welcomed was, quote, yellow. And that was being used in a positive type of thing. It wasn't necessarily meant to be derogatory, but it's just like... I'm not yellow. Yellow is loaded. That's that's just a very um, historically derogatory term. And um, the conversation that I brought up and then we got kind of wrapped up in was kind of understanding how offensive 
other people of Japanese heritage found the term yellow. And I am honestly quite flabbergasted that most of the people that were responding to this had absolutely no problem with being referred to as yellow or being called yellow. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but kind of doing mile digging, just like looking at profile pictures, essentially. And, you know, just for like age category and things like that. Yeah. It's like, okay, most of them are older Mm -hmm. opposed to more in our age range. Right. Um, And something that I had come to realize last year, right around this time was that there's also kind of a generational divide with mm-hmm. the term oriental. Right. <laughs> like it's, This has come up a few times yeah. on my show. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you refer to me as oriental, that's a big no, no, right. but it's a like, rug or a dish, it, not a person. <laughs> walk up to grandma. Grandma might be okay with that. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of like a reclassification because what may have been appropriate at one time isn't really appropriate now. Right. And kind of trying, um, some of them were, some of the people in the group were trying to draw the association between black and white and like white and black are used derogatory. Like I can't think of a whole bunch of instances where white is per se, but yeah, not really a little bit more like self-classification, but then the African-American movement really latched onto the black terminology right. and self-owned it. I don't I th- think it translated. I don't think it translates to yellow quite as much, but specifically yeah. with, with blackness. And I am the kind of mixed black person that identifies as black, not African-American because African-American doesn't fit. You know, I don't know if my ancestors have been here 400 years or 150 years. All I know is that they were enslaved. And as a result, I have a disconnect to where my people come from. And if not for a DNA test, I wouldn't know that they specifically came from, you know, three tribes in Gabon. That was something I had to pay for, like a lot of money. Um, You know, like I had to pay a lot of money to find out where in Africa my ancestry comes from. So um, for me, the African-American never sat well, and it was becoming really popular when I was coming of age. So that 12 to 14 age range was about the time that Ebonics was being discussed. Um, African-American as a term was coming up. And for me, Black made sense because it was how I understood being an American descendant of enslaved people versus being from Africa. Like I had no bridge Mm -hmm. to Africa. So black for me is empowering and it's very comfortable. I'm also of, I'm born in the late seventies. So I'm, I'm kind of a product of the end of the black Panther movement and, and those kind of, you know, racially um, service to community militancy and things like that. So for me, Black made sense. White is so generic. Like, how do you feel anything about this? Like, for me, my my white comes from, on my mom's side, the white is West Virginia, Appalachian folk. And my, um, <laughs> right? And I even say it, Appalachian, right? I learned last year how to say it. Um, and then my other, my dad's mother is from England. So my white that I grew up with was British. I didn't have American whiteness. My grandfather was long gone by then. So I feel nothing about the term white. Like it, it has no effect on me, whereas black raises me up. Yellow, it's a mixed bag of when it's okay and when it's not. 
in in the personal small collective group of like mixed Japanese, you know, when we're having a conversation, it's it's fine to me. It doesn't bother me. I also like the co- color combination of black, white, and yellow. And I make a joke about it's because it reflects me. But I don't go around the world letting people call me yellow. Like that's not that's not really what happens. Um, and uh, so when I f- see it, I always have to take a step back and be like, all right, who is the creator of this content and then go from there. You know, what bothers me is when people do, and because it's probably searchable, I won't mention it unless you want to mention it. But the particular thing that you posted, it listed black, white, yellow, and other colors that have nothing to do with race and skin tone. You know, that's where I get hung up. Like I don't like I don't care if you're black, white, yellow, or green. Well, there's no green people, so let's calm down. And then I say that thinking, well, there's no yellow people really either. Mm-hmm. So I can see why it caused some of the chaos it did. You said you found there was a lot of older people yeah, that weren't as bothered by it. Older people. Um, there was one person, like basically almost. There was only one person that I actually somewhat knew who was responding to this. Mm. Everyone else was complete strangers to me, which is fine because that's kind of part of what the group yeah. is, is to kind of connect with the Japanese culture that you have or the Japanese culture that you have been denied with, Right, is my case. Um, so it has been very enlightening for me. I picked up on like cooking and some other things. But yeah, for the most part, it was definitely older. And there was one person who was like, I see nothing wrong with the term yellow, but include brown because I'm Filipino. Hmm. Oh, that's funny because it's Asian. Well, okay, no, there's something to that. There are Filipinos that do refer to themselves as brown where that's not a and South Asians. It's not common for East and Northern Asians to consider themselves brown, though. That, yeah. There's something it's like, there. It's like I I prefer to be called brown than yellow, but is it really necessary to bring it up in the first place? Right. So I guess it, it kind of has to do with um with the kind of community. Like um, I'm just now starting to embrace using the term brown more frequently as as a thing of just. I'm struggling with the term POC right now with people of color uh, because it still centers whiteness. And I'm frustrated by how our language only has words that remind us white people exist and that we're not white, even if we're mixed with white. Like, you know, I'm I'm really struggling. Yes. Yes. I'm struggling with it. I'm trying to use brown to embrace like I'm brown, you know, like, and it's more accurate, more closely related to the actual coloring that I might have versus, um, although right now in this lighting, I'm, I'm kind of looking a little bit yellow. Uh, but the, I, I'm really struggling with it. Like, um, I don't know how important it is that we use colors as the way that we describe ourselves. And yet I don't want to lose black. So because I don't want to lose black, I'm trying to find ways of understanding mm-hmm. yellow, brown, white, I mean, I actually even saw someone say peach power on um, a group once. And I was just like, "Ooh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a thing. Um, but there are terms of like uh, oh, like taking it back, which is why I want to kind of understand the mm-hmm. origin of this this thing that you posted is were they 
white people attempting allyship with this? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's why it's so itchy. <laughs> like that's why it's so uncomfortable because it just doesn't seem like something that a brown person would like there too. It's like we are community. It's it's community as is. You don't need to dissect the salad of our community into components to say that everyone can come in. Like, is it more important that you're all Virginians from the the River Valley? Was it what the River do? Valley, really Valley area, or is it more important that there are some of you are white and some of you are black and some of you are yellow? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It is a very, it is a very very white community for sure, um, and. Like the community that I grew up in was by far even whiter. Like I'm from I'm from Floyd County, and I like to joke about our population that we have more cows than people. Oh, okay. <laughs> and our landmark, and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about when you say it. The stoplight. We have the one stoplight stop <laughs> in the county, which is in the middle of the town, which is. You can drive from one side of the town to the other in less than 10 minutes. It's just like, don't blink because you left the town limits in that time frame. So it's a very, very small town. My high school graduating class had 132 people in it. Mm. Um, I think there were three or four Asians maybe we were all of mixed backgrounds various mixed backgrounds um so I'm Japanese there was one other person that had some Japanese had Filipino there might have been another person that I'm not sure about like but in general it was very 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 white right um and what about Latinx or or black folks was there any we had, I think we had two in my grade, or, and one of them transferred out of my school to another school. So it was like, no, we have one. <laughs> and one, um, one Mexican in our class, too. We had, or a small out of in the middle of nowhere location. Floyd is actually starting to get kind of a semi large. Latino population because um, when I was a kid, we had a lot of Christmas trees in our area and a lot of agricultural workers Uh headed up to our area to work on the Christmas tree farms and stayed and had families and such. Um, So compared to what the school looked like when I was there to what it looks now, there's definitely a larger Latino population, but still really small and Mm -hmm. still very, very white. Right. Um, But I went to Virginia Tech for my undergrad and it's a small college town, but it's like a little Mecca in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of Asians, all kinds, Indian, Chinese, lots of Koreans, Japanese. So it was like the first time that I wasn't the Asian person in the class and felt like I could actually blend in to a certain extent instead of being the person of color that was doing whatever. Right. Because you're noticeably Asian to me. um, And I assume (laughs) to that very white town, you were probably noticeably Asian. 
I might look at you and be like, huh, I wonder if she's if she's mixed. But like a white person who's never been anywhere would probably only see you as an as yeah. an Asian. And I remember like one of the earliest memories I have in kindergarten is swinging on the swings. It was recess. What kindergartner doesn't love recess? I'm on the swings, swinging really high because of course that's what you're supposed to do. Go as high as you can. And some kid down in the playground yells out like, wow, look how high that Chinese girl is. I'm like, I'm not even Chinese. I, <laughs> I don't understand why it's so difficult to tell yeah. tell us apart. I understand I have an unfair advantage, but <laughs> <laughs> we look so different to me. I don't understand why we are always Chinese. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was definitely a weird kind of experience growing up. And as far as kind of understanding and interacting with my ethnicity, it's been a kind of long personal journey with a love-hate relationship of trying to see who I am, understand who I am, but also see and understand what the world sees when they see me and how their interpretation of what they see interact um, affects their interaction with me. That right. sounds somewhat convoluted, but well, something that I think is is pretty unique to the mixed Japanese experience that that other mixed Asians probably don't, because other Asians do tend to stay within community a lot uh, better than we do. You know, there are some places that are Japanese spaces. Like I live in a district here in LA that is is Japanese. Then there are two here, but most of the time there aren't very large Japanese communities and we don't keep our language. We don't necessarily teach our language, things like that. The, the biggest touchstone is usually like a Buddhist temple that is nearby where you go to for all the Japanese events throughout the year. And that's kind of the extent of access. I think for us, compared to a lot of the other Asian people who like stay in community, keep language, have school, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So I think what's really unique about our Asian experience is that we could literally like you maneuver through the world with our our Japanese faces and people are seeing us as Japanese. But because our culture has not carried through our upbringing, we're somehow representing something we have little or no access to. And we're going to be the representative of that to that per- to these other per- people, oh my regardless of what we do. Yes, and I, I don't, I don't know if uh, you've experienced this, but I definitely have. Particularly being in a very white community and a very white area, or just even in an area that's very void of Asian people in general, it's like. I may be the only Asian person they've met before, or they've not really experienced any other interactions. And I feel like I have to be perfect, be very helpful, be the best person I can be, because they're going to judge all of us by their one limited experience with me, which is very heavy. It's too heavy and you don't (laughs) deserve that weight. Like you don't. (laughs) Um... You know, these are moments where, like, I find that I will use humor that is stereotypical, like, to deflect from the pain of something like that, like that very heavy weight. I'll be like, I know I got thick Japanese calves, but I can't carry that weight. 
I like that's my knee jerk reaction to a feeling like that of the responsibility that lays on us as as mixed Asians if pe- if we're in communities where people aren't used to us. But as Japanese mixed people, it is a struggle to connect because it's a, already a very I don't want to say closed off in a in a necessarily negative way, but it's a very like tight keep it on the island kind of culture so to come mm-hmm. here and to try to share it it's like we don't want them to know what we're like you know and so to the degree that even us it's like you don't talk about family outside of family you don't yeah I mean you barely talk about family in family I had two <laughs> great aunts true. yeah like I had two great aunts who had stage three cancer and and didn't tell anybody until they were in remission and like a year later and it was like oh yeah I had cancer I'm fine well, uh, oh gosh you know, like that's how closed off Japanese are that even within the own family. And I remember growing up, it was always like something happened. It was like, don't tell anybody in the family, you know, mm-hmm. as it was, no one in my family besides my grandmother knew we were black. You know, we didn't tell anybody until I was an adult. And I finally started telling my cousins. I was like, because they, they always asked, what's your dad? American you know whatever that meant american but they thought we were so brown they thought we were mexican because it would never they couldn't fathom the idea that we would be black like and we don't super duper look like like black people know i'm black but japanese people don't know i'm japanese so how are they gonna know i'm black you know so yeah like as a a, i think it's a unique thing that we go through and for someone like you who who had uh, I think sp- probably specifically because your family comes from the internment era, the protection of like let's not do to our future our future generation let's not give white people in power an excuse to do to our future grandkids you know oh, what they did to I us. Have a little story on that one too, like so just just growing up in general, like. I knew I was Japanese, but didn't really know, like it had no meaning other than I'm Japanese. It didn't have any cultural implications um, really other than the occasional Asian dish, but really it wasn't necessarily ethnically Japanese or anything like that. Right. Um, But I was aware from a very young age and I can't remember what age that the Japanese internment was a thing during World War II. That was something that my mother did feel was important that I know. Um, I'm not sure if my other siblings took that quite to heart as much mm-hmm. as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I don't know if she's told them this story either. Um, but she found out in a very uncomfortable way. And um, I guess having this conversation too, you could also interpret it as a very Japanese way of finding out. Um, <laughs> she didn't know about the Japanese internment until she was in college and took yeah. a history class. Yeah. She found out in history class on a college campus that this happened. She didn't find out from her parents. And like she said, the first thing she basically did was go home and ask them about it. Yeah. The borderline refused to even talk to her about it, but she was just completely floored. And I think that really, really shook her to yeah. extent that, um, that is really hard to translate. Right. 
My grandmother, she was uh, she was um, little during the World War II, so she didn't know why the Americans came. Why why were they here? They didn't know about Pearl Harbor. They didn't know about the war specifically being. They didn't know why the Americans attacked. Basically, they had they had no idea that uh, that Japan had bombed the States in any way, shape or form. So, and it wasn't until she was an adult when she came, she married an American, came to America and found out about Pearl Harbor. And she made me take her to go see that terrible movie oh, um, with Ben Affleck. And I was like, grandma, I don't want to go. Like, I was like, I don't want to go see this movie. I definitely don't want to go see this movie with you. Like I already don't want to go. And she's like, I need to learn. I'm like, you're not going to learn. So the whole movie was me saying that that part didn't happen. That's not how that went. Like, and then I had to afterwards, like, tell her what I learned in school versus what she saw in the movie. Oh, it was. But exactly like that. Like, they don't talk about it. So how are they going to know why their family is the way that they are? Yeah. And um, I guess for me personally, and I'll dive in a little bit more about myself. So it's been interesting as an adult trying to go through and kind of pick apart sections of my life to understand myself better, to understand my parents better, and to kind of understand like who I am, why I am, and if something is bothering me, better understand it so I can either like embrace or reject those feelings that I have that are triggering negative connotations. And um, so I have gone to therapy. I'll just throw that out there. (laughs) We're we're a pro-therapy podcast here. Yes, (laughs) I went to uh, cognitive processing therapy, which is awesome. Um, It's all about thought process and really being... um, more analytical about what's going on instead of emotional so you can think about things more kind of like holistically and balanced instead of just having that knee-jerk emotional reaction which is a problem frequently for people who have um, been in an abusive situation relationship childhood etc with that being said um my father was kind of crazy. Um, he he was a very special, unique individual. Um, a white, redheaded, Polish Catholic boy that I guess he grew up Vatican to maybe. He went to Catholic school. He had red hair and he was a lefty. Mm. And had ADHD and was dyslexic, I'm sure. The nuns Mm. loved him by beating him. Mm. So, um, and he also had a very rough childhood with abuse as well. Um, Not saying that that's an excuse, but as me understanding him as a person and kind of where he was coming from and how that translated down to us. Um, as far as I know, he never really sought any kind of psychiatric help, Mm -hmm. but through, you know, trying to understand what was going on with me, with, um, our relationship that he has all of the keynotes of 
having had narcissistic personality disorder, mm-hmm. like, um, just like everything negative is kind of happening to him. It's a conspiracy. People are against him. I don't do anything wrong. And literally being able to recreate a chain of events in his head, in his own image, even if we can prove that that's not what happens, but he legitimately would believe it. Mm -hmm. Not saying that that's an excuse, but just kind of like understanding how that translated to his child rearing skills. Exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) We're subpar. So, um, I, I am a child of his third marriage. Um, oh, okay. so I have two much older half sisters that are very white. Mm. Um, so they're, I think, I think they're around 15 years older than my brother and maybe around 18 years older than I am, give or take. Okay. Um, so a big age gap. My dad was much older than my mom. And, um, part of my dad died when I was 26 and it was definitely a very rough period. I was for my last year of grad school. I was also his caretaker while writing my thesis, while doing my, my work for my thesis show. Mm. And, um, it was a difficult period and he, I ended up leaving too, because I needed to do that for myself. Um, because that wasn't a situation that I had asked for. It was a situation that he had put himself into. And part of me was needing to understand that. But, um, anyway, he passed around a year after I moved out, he had numerous health conditions, um, And honestly did not take very good care of himself, which again was his responsibility and not mine. Mm -hmm. Um, But our, my half sisters came down like on his deathbed. And after he died, um, we were going back up to the house to like try to clean and purge. My dad was a pack rat. (laughs) And kind of like crazy on multiple levels, like conspiracy theorists. So Y2K, Y2K <laughs> didn't happen. So the world is having its biblical end. We have to be ready. So all things considered, I feel like I turned out like a pretty normal <laughs> human being. But part of part of the drive, like my half-sisters are... Canadian. Um, They were born in the U.S., but they have Canadian citizenship now, and they live in Canada, and they flew down all the way down here, and so they didn't have a car, so we were driving back and forth in awkward situation. We were trying to bond because, long story short, my dad, of course, was not a family-building character, so he had put decisive actions kind of between family. Mm. Um, So we did not have really a previous relationship with our sisters Mm. and, but they wanted to try to help try to mend some bridges, build bridges. And I don't remember which one of them said it, but And it may have also been kind of like nervous conversation at that point, too, because, I mean, our father had just died. We're trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And um, 
One of them said that when he met my mother, um, they were up in Canada. And at that point in his life, he decided that he wanted to follow a new path and go to chiropractic school and found one down in Georgia (laughs) and um, had started dating my mom. I'm not sure how long before that. And so he like took them aside somehow. They were, I guess, around 15 or so and was like, it's time for me to start a new section of my life, which is also a very bizarre thing you say to your child. I've heard heard those words from my parents' life. It is terrible. (laughs) And like, um, it's time for me to start a new part of my life. And um, basically saying that he was going to be with my mother and brought up that she was Japanese and that if he was ever unhappy with her, he could just send her home. Wow. And so it's just like, what? This is just, um, I definitely wasn't exactly appreciative of that time. And I don't fault them for that. It was a very weird period for both of us. Um, I probably would have preferred having the news in a different context, but that definitely has kind of opened my eyes to a certain extent to kind of see who he was and how he viewed my mother Mm -hmm. and in kind of a degree of how he might have viewed me as well. Like I wasn't really necessarily a person. Right. I was more an extension of him than an individual. And my mom was kind of his property to a certain extent, I think. And like, honestly, trying to sit down and puzzle that was very difficult because it's trying to be uh, objective within a very emotional, very personal part of who I am. Yeah, that uh, I don't, I don't want to like make too much of a blanket statement about that feeling very typical. And yet my grandfather, my white grandfather marrying a Japanese wife and all his friends doing it as well, including his best friend married my grandmother's sister. And like that these were white men who did kind of treat their Japanese brides as uh, domestic domestics you're, you're you're my wife but you're kind of my servant at the yeah. same time that that's the vibe that i would say i felt in the the white men that were married into my japanese family um and even even to the degree of like my grandfather actually had another family he had a german family simultaneously with my japanese family which we didn't know about until afterwards but there's like a son that's like between the ages of my mom and her younger sister and so like clearly and looks just like him but that's a different thing <laughs> uh, like he, to, to try to deny like oh no this is a new thing it's like mm, okay that guy <laughs> looks just like you uh but that idea of just like one of them was the real one like he was legally married to my grandmother but like they had a house they had a family they had a life like this thing of just like it's fine because 
I'm reaching, I might be reaching, but it's the way that I felt given the circumstance of this idea of just like, if they were legitimate, I wouldn't have this other family. You know, like I wouldn't need this other family, but he has his white family and then he had his Japanese family. Uh You know, um, I think that is a thing. I I don't, like I said, I don't want to be too blanket about it, but just because I saw it in my own family too and hearing your story, like everything you were saying, I was just like, yeah, I believe a hundred percent that that is how that felt for him even not knowing him like it just seems like is that a product of the time is that this dehumanizing thing of like people that are different from you like don't know but that's it feels yeah definitely on more than one occasion I remember him also ranting about immigrants at the table and it's just like (laughs) you you married one but also isn't he a canadian so and he's in america no no he is american oh he is an american okay from detroit okay so yeah so with all of that being said it's been kind of an interesting journey trying to figure out it's like is this part of the narcissism right is this part of maybe the japanese self-repression is this a combination right all of this like talking um, I have one, he's Taiwanese, but he is now an American citizen and he's lived most of his life over in the U.S., but still like there's definitely a disconnect between his understanding of American culture, but he also still understands his home culture very well and has mm-hmm. kind of a more open view of it. And I think that's one benefit, I guess you could say, of being biracial Sometimes you don't feel like you entirely, or at least I don't feel like I entirely have my skin in the game mm-hmm. the same way as maybe people of full descent do. Sure. So I feel that I can look at it a little bit more objectively mm. because I don't feel necessarily as tied to some of these, say, same cultural values. Right. Um, That's a tough one, though, because like, the reason you don't have those ties is really just about access. And if you had more access, your whole identity would would be different. And coming from a culture like Japanese culture, where they are so tight about, about it, especially when they go to other places, where this... I think it's probably the same for both mixed um, Japanese and also for like Japanese born, uh, uh, American born Japanese uh, of this thing of just like, we're kind of orphans to this thing that we clearly are a reflection of because it's like in, (laughs) it's in us and everything like that. But, but we're almost complete strangers to it. And the way that we have to try to find access and connection, you, you said, I don't, you feel like you may not have skin in the game. What, like you wonder what would be that thing that would make you get there? And do you feel like, is it too late? Could you try? you know, what are the things you could do? Like, there's a lot of feelings that I think are connected to that, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I definitely tried making connections and it's been hard on multiple levels because access, of course, is one. Um, There really aren't, to my knowledge, aren't a whole bunch of specifically Japanese people in the area. Yeah. Um, And also because of my upbringing and basically 
uh, part of how my dad made sure we were isolated so mm. he could keep in control of us. Yeah. Um, put a permanent wedge between like me and my family and yeah. access to his family, but also my mom's family. Right. Like I, I saw my grandparents, granted, I mean, they were Canadian and they had a long way to travel. Sure. But I only saw my grandparents like maybe five or six times, maybe. Mm. Um, and my grandmother died my freshman year of college. And my grandfather died after I finished grad school, but still there was like no relationship because my dad literally made it difficult. And with maybe not specifically saying it with words, but making it very clear with actions Mm -hmm. that they were not welcome, that it was his house. And so, um, it was not comfortable for them to be there either. Yeah. And so I know. What a bizarre um, way that the people that are, that have this, cause it's in my family too, of just like you married this person, but there's no embracing of who they actually are, or where they come from. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Yeah. It, it's like, I, I see you as an object and Maybe some of it is also due to the like super hyper sexualization of Asian, Asian women. women. Yeah. Um, I can't say for sure in my situation, but it's definitely yeah. been a weird, bumpy ride. <laughs> right. I, I've heard it too. Like, there's been people who have straight up asked me the question, like, am I a proper Japanese wife? And I'm like, what the hell do you think that means? Like, what do you think that means? Because, you know, like. We need some inappropriate language (laughs) right here flying out of her mouth. Yeah, just like, what is happening? Yeah, there's this weird, there, there, I think there is something to that. Um, I think it's clear. I mean, one of the biggest things that it seems clear to me, and I I think this would cross almost any, any mixed uh, interracial relationship of some sort is the willingness to learn a language. It was very clear that it was my grandmother's responsibility to learn English and speak it exclusively. But it was never the case that my grandfather or any of my white uncles, you know, who married Japanese women were required to learn Japanese. They may know a couple little phrases that they thought were cute or whatever, but that wasn't the family unit as an interracial family wasn't a thing. It was a white culture that just happened to have these, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they were literally called the yellow brides. So like going back to the idea of when the, when that word was used, you know, they, it was a white culture with these yellow brides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I could be wrong because again, it's not me. It's uh, some others that I've interacted with. Mm -hmm. I think, um, Definitely, there was a huge culture kill during the internments. Sure, absolutely. And you're talking about it happening, too, with the war bride period. Mm-hmm. I think when you're starting to get post that and people are immigrating, um, more recent immigrants are far more likely to be taking their kids to Japanese school on the weekends, I right. think. I, I agree. Then, um, then say 
our generation's family would have been. I'm so jealous because I live really close to, like I said, a, a one of the smaller of the two Japanese communities here in LA. And there's like Japanese school. And I was like, oh, Japanese school, I'm going to sign up. And it's only until 12 years old. And I'm like, oh, crap. So I can't even like try to go back to embrace some of that older cultural things, which I actually had a decent amount of access to when I was little, except for language. Um, but I'm so jealous of this, of these kids, like I, to be that jealous of like a five-year-old who is probably really upset that they have to go to Japanese school on the weekend. But you're for jealous me, of you that you can do what you want. I know, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just like, I want to be like you, kid. Just in terms of like certain mannerisms and things that like there's some stuff that made it in there just through observation and like living with my grandmother and things. But I, I that absence, I definitely feel that orphan status to I was about to say the words real Japanese um, too, but, but that's exactly how like it feels like that um, living in the community that I live in and trying to get like little doses of access to Japanese-ness and only little things trickle out of me because I only had so much access. Um, there's there, like, yeah, there's like pain in it. Like I feel, I feel that absence. Do you feel that, gosh, it's tough because I, I know where you, I know generally where you're at and how little of um, access there is to, to Japanese heritage. Is there, do you f- feel a loss of it? Do What do you, where do you sit? <laughs> yes. Like kind of an emptiness. Like um, I'll, I'll say like reference the, the group that we just met in. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's literally been an access point. Right. Um, cause I grew up in a house, like, again, just very, very weird, non-traditional upbringing. Um, apparently my mother did not learn how to cook until she married my dad, which oh. sounds kind of crazy. <laughs> um, so it wasn't like her parents were even teaching her how to prepare any of the dishes that she may right. have grown up with. So I don't even really know how, say, ethnic her kitchen was compared to what we grew up with. But we also didn't have access to those things in our community. Yeah, you wouldn't have been able to get like nishiki rice or anything like that. What is that? (laughs) Um, So there's definitely kind of feeling like I'm missing something. And then being part of this group, I've been able to pick up on some cooking which has nice. been very helpful, but even like sharing some posts, like I did this, I did yeah. XYZ in my garden and people are throwing out like one or two or short little Japanese phrases. And I'm like, I, yeah, I got to Google no that. What the heck that is. I'm going to try to Google that right now. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it's definitely a kind of up and interpretation it's like yeah. it could kind of swing either way whether this was a good or a bad connotation yeah there's a lot a lot of japanese phrases teeter that line of um if it's said really politely it's a negative and, and if it's said more kind of just like this is it then it's maybe it's not too bad yeah there's a lot there's of what even i have access to like i i took japanese in school and things my Japanese is terrible. My, I'm more of a mimic than a than actually comfortable. So like I will mimic my grandmother's Japanese, which means I sound like an old lady when I speak <laughs> to Japanese people. 
but yeah, there's a lot of phrases like that. Um, and I appreciate that you've like me, you know, sought out a space to try to have some kind of connection. And I've learned things too, that I I didn't have, you know, I probably had a little bit more access, but I I've learned things that didn't come up in my family. So things like that are helpful. It's disturbing because of the vast age discrepancy in that group of where some things, sometimes the older folks will post something and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, because that wouldn't fly right now. Like, but in that small group, it's not so bad. Sometimes it's not so bad. Sometimes it's just cute, you know, but there are times. And I think the responses under the post that you did, some of it was really revealing in terms of just there is a difference between us. <laughs> yeah. And part of part of the journey for me too has been personally, I consider when I'm I'm thinking of myself and other people, I'm feeling inclusive when it comes to other people of color because a lot of us, no matter what our skin tone is. We've had some similar experiences here and there, even if it is just like feeling uncomfortable that we're the only person in a room. Absolutely. I got to do diversity training once and I was the only person besides the person giving the training in the room. It was like, are we good here? Yeah. We're good here. (laughs) Yeah. That's Um, been there too. (laughs) Sucks. But yeah. One thing that has been really eye-opening for me is, again, in that group, is understanding oneself in relation to others. Like, we're not, we're not just a single individual that has zero impact or interaction right. with others. It's a collective, and how we deal with other people is kind of a reflection. And I was just kind of surprised at the number of people that have kind of I guess for a lack of better terminology that I can think of right now is almost kind of a self whitewashing Mm -hmm. to where it's, I think that's fair where they um, thought morality wise, um, even when it comes to discrimination, align themselves with say the whiter line Mm -hmm. opposed to with their brothers in the people of color spectrum Mm -hmm. and also kind of identify them as an otherness rather Mm -hmm. than as uh, of an equal self. Right. And that's definitely been a little hard for me to grasp as a person. I'm like, yes, but we're all individuals. We all have different experiences and their experiences have led them here rather than there. And when you're kind of craving that connection of what you was absent to you and you see people dismissing it voluntarily it's just like uh you know just like I want this though how do you how are you dismissing it so easily I yeah I think that that can be a little bit tough we are coming to the end though so before we wrap up one thing that I do like to do is you know we talk about trauma sometimes we talk about difficulties and just general discomfort as mixed people not always finding as a special place but I do like to end the show by asking my guests, what do you love most about being a mixed person? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I guess it's 
by having been forced by the white community around me to see myself as difference, mm. it's made me, as a personal choice, look into exploring my own cultural heritage more mm. and not only myself, but trying to understands where other cultures are coming from and what some of those other cultural norms are mm -hmm. instead of always just trying to impose what I think is normal onto other people. Yeah. Um, well, once you are a guest on Militantly Mixed, you become part of the Militantly Mixed family. So you are now a cousin or since we're both Japanese, itoko. Um, <laughs> uh, so you can always feel like you have, a, you have a family to, to connect with here, um, uh, in terms of your mixedness, uh, bef before we get out of here, do you want to share how people can connect with you if they, if they want? Sure. Or? Um, I'm an artist. Woo. So, uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm Sidra K that's S I D R A K dot art. And for Facebook, it's Sidra K dot art slash um, backslash. All right. So we'll put that in the show notes so that people can support our new cousin uh, in your art endeavor and everything like that. And um, I just I want to thank you for jumping on with me. I know that when I saw your post, um, I, you know, I try not to do too much self promotion on that group because I don't think that that's like the mission of that group. But it was an opportunity to mm -hmm. connect with another mixed person because I don't always think that that's where I'm going to find mixed folks necessarily. And um and get a chance to to have this conversation. So I do appreciate you jumping on with me and doing that. And just know that whenever you do feel like you don't have that sense of your mixed Japanese community, that you have you have somebody over here in California. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.